Well, it is the final weekend of our series, Puzzled. We begin a great new series next week, but uh, this is an important message today. But before I, I dive into it, I just want to call out our musicians today. Weren't, weren't, weren't musicians in choir, aren't they awesome for serving us so well? I don't know if you notice Marcy Crosby, she's one of our vocalists. She's picked up the guitar in the last few years, and she was even over there on the guitar, which is awesome to see Marcy uh, picking up a new instrument and playing in, in our worship today. Um, as you know, as we mentioned a lot this service already, it's Valentine's weekend. Uh, maybe you're sick of hearing that already. You're like, it was yesterday, let's move on with it. Um, but Valentine's weekend is interesting because it started as, as a holiday, Valentine's Day, that, uh, that was really in commemoration of a martyr, someone who lost their life for their faith, and it has become a holiday that's all about flowers and chocolate and eating dinner out. Um, and, and in my mind, I guess that makes sense because I see huge connections between dying a slow and painful death and true love. Don't you? <laughs> um, Valentine's Day is, is huge. It's an $18 billion holiday, which if you do the math, means that some of you got gypped yesterday. Someone spending $18 billion, it probably wasn't your significant other. Uh, but really, we think $18 billion, that's a lot of money. But what is $18 billion when we're talking about true love? But on the heels of Valentine's Day, I just want you to think for a second. What, what if things were different when it came to love? What if love weren't a choice? What if instead people were programmed to do nice things for you and say nice things to you and, and to encourage you. And, and, and really, it wasn't motivated by feeling. It wasn't motivated by will. It was simply a matter of, of you have to do it because you're programmed to do it. Are you following me here? I'm talking about Stepford Wives kind of stuff here. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like if, if your, your brother, your sister, or your mom, or your dad, or your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, if, if they really didn't want to love you, they weren't choosing to love you, can you imagine if they were just following some program that someone wrote in their head and they, and they had to? It'd be kind of a buzzkill on Valentine's Day, wouldn't it? It would end all romance if that were the case. Which just shows us that, that love, even though it's not a feeling, it must be a choice. Otherwise, what else is it? If, if it's not a choice, it's, it's obedience, it's obligation, but it's not love, whatever it is. And you know, this has been true since the beginning of time. Way, way back in the Garden of Eden, when, when God was there with people, and you can read about this in Genesis 1 through 3, but God was there with people, and, uh, and he created them to be in a love relationship with himself, and I guess they didn't have many options because there weren't many people around other than the two of them and God and then all of the animals. And yet, yet even there in the Garden, God created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as an alternative, as, as a choice to loving him. See, Adam and Eve could either love God and receive the knowledge of good and evil from him, or they could choose to live life without God and have it for themselves. It was a choice that God gave them even back in the garden, and, and that choice proved disastrous, and yet God himself provided it. Which again shows us that love may not be a feeling, and it certainly isn't just a feeling, but it has to be a choice. What is love without choice? You know, choice is a fundamental human value for us. I think there are a few things that we value more than choice, and that says something, I believe, about how we were created, that we are created for choice. Which is why Christianity, uh, stuff in the Bible that we're going to look at today, or even stuff that Christians say, 
That's why it can be so confusing, because even though we know that choice is valuable, so many of the things that we say don't seem to reinforce that point of view. For instance, have you ever heard someone say, God is in control? I mean, what does that mean, really? God is in control of everything? Even the bad stuff? Even the mistakes I make? Is God in control of all of that? And if that's true, does that mean that we have no control over our lives? Have you ever heard someone say, everything happens for a reason? Everything happens for a reason? That sounds a lot like fate or, or fatalism, that you can't escape fate or some plan that's set and you can't buck against it. Nothing can change. You have no, no will. Or in the, uh, the uh, topic of romance, we hear people say, oh, well, she was God's choice for me, speaking about their significant other, or he was God's choice for me. Really? So we don't even have a choice in, in who we marry or who we love? Like even God has selected that and, and we just have to pick whoever God has already picked for us? We get no say? When we pray, we're, we're even taught to pray this in the Lord's Prayer, we're taught to pray, thy will be done or your will be done. Does that mean our will, our choice doesn't matter? And then, and then when things happen and we pray this and we say, God, give me this, but your will be done, and, and then it doesn't happen the way we wanted, we say, well, it must, not, must have been God's will or must not have been God's will. Kind of like we've gotten overruled. See, in all of this, we're begging this bigger question of when it comes to God, do we actually have a choice? Or is God the great puppet master pulling all the strings? Is he the great script writer? And we're just actors who have to play our part and we have no choice in this matter. See, this is what we're going to talk about today. This, uh, this very idea of do we have choice, not just in, in things like my job or who I marry or the decisions I make in life, but do we have a choice even in the really big things, like in matters of faith? Do we have a choice in whether or not we, we believe in God, or is that something that's also predetermined? And I'll tell you, this isn't just you know, a modern thing. This isn't just an American thing because we like choice. This is something people have been wrestling with since, since the beginning of time, definitely since the New Testament era. Uh, today we're going to look at some scriptures where, um, where Paul is, is he's writing and he's addressing Jewish Christians. Now, if you were a Jewish Christian living in the New Testament era after Jesus, um, a lot of things had changed for you. See, it used to be if you were a Jewish person, if you were a Hebrew person, you grew up under the understanding that God had chosen the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, just because he wanted to. The Bible makes clear that he didn't choose them because they were the brightest or the best. He chose them just because they were actually the least, and he wanted to, uh, to just choose them. He just chose them randomly, and he set his affection on them. If you grew up a Jewish person in that era, you, you understood that if you were a part of the line of Abraham, and then Abraham had a son Isaac, and then Isaac had a son Jacob, and, and Jacob's name was changed to Israel later. And so if you were part of that line, you were selected by God. And, and that felt really great that you were chosen by him, that God just chose you by, bir- by virtue of your birth. And you were favored. But, but see, what happened was... Jesus came into the scene, and so now in the New Testament world, now that Jesus came into the scene, some weird stuff starts happening. And people like Paul and other Christian teachers begin saying some odd stuff. Even Jesus says some odd stuff about all this. Because suddenly what happens is is that Gentile people, people who have no connection to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, who aren't born into the right family, they start getting selected. And, And worse, worse than that, people who were a part of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's family, people who were born into the right family, who were part of this selected, chosen family, 
suddenly over the issue of Jesus and whether or not they, they believe in him and accept him for who he is, they are now being deselected or rejected. And, and so first century Jewish people are, are kind of in a, a tailspin about all this stuff. And they're saying, what's going on here? What is God doing? Do we get any choice in this matter? Or is God just choosing and unchoosing at his, uh, at his own will? And today we're going to look at a section of scripture where Paul, who is, is a teacher of the time, uh, inspired by God, he begins answering this question for him in a very thick, very dense, very difficult to understand section of scripture. So we're going to look at it today, Romans chapter 9. You can look in your Bibles or your smartphones. We're going to see it on the screen. But before we dive into the scripture, let's pray. Father, I, I ask today for wisdom, not just for myself, but also that. God, I pray for wisdom for all of us, that we would have discernment, that we would have understanding to just get this important issue. God, this is so confusing to so many of us. Uh, churches divide themselves on these issues. Christians, uh, you know, separate themselves into different denominations on this issue. God, I pray that today that you would you just speak truth into our hearts, that we'd understand more of who you are and what you want for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Romans 9, uh, here we go. Paul says, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? You know, is God unjust again? Because for a while he was picking these people on the basis of their, their lineage, their heritage. And now, even some of those people who were chosen before, because they don't agree with Jesus, they don't believe in Jesus, now they're being deselected. Is that fair? What is God doing here? What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all, he says. For he says to Moses, and, and, he, and he's going to talk about some stuff that happened way, way back. For he said way back in the day to Moses... He said this directly to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, so, so Pharaoh was the king of Egypt, Moses was dealing with him. If you don't know the whole story, Pharaoh's this, this king who's holding the Israelites hostage as slaves, and God makes an example of him. He brings plagues on his land. Um, so, so back in those days of Pharaoh, scripture says that God said to him, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. It looks like Paul has answered our question, right? Do we actually have any choice when it comes to God? It looks like the answer is no. (laughs) Because God has mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy on, and he hardens whoever he wants to harden. It's not looking so good for us as far as choice is concerned. And yet it's almost as if Paul, he hears our, our objection to this. He hears our question. He anticipates it. And so what he says next is this. He says, now, now one of you are going to say to me, okay, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? In other words, one of you will say to me, no fair. This isn't fair. Now, I don't know how you feel about those words when they're uttered in your house or in your place of work. Um, for me, whether it's someone in my household or someone on my team, those words, no fair, uh, those are bad words. No fair, that, that's the F word in my mind, right? No fair, life isn't fair. Let's not talk about fairness. I mean, if you want to get my blood boiling, just you know, have my kids tell me that something's not fair and then I'm going to tell them what would actually be fair and that they're not going to like it, right? I mean, you've been there. And see, that's kind of what Paul does here is, is he's going to go on for two chapters. I mean, th- this question sets him off. He's going to go on for, for two chapters um, exaggerating, 
um, hypothesizing, giving analogies for how God is God and he can do whatever he wants and we should never cry back to God, no fair. I'll spare you from all of the words that Paul says today. But it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, really, I mean, we don't like to say no fair, but, but this is a very important question. I mean, if God just shows mercy to whoever he wants to and he hardens whoever he wants to, then, then how is that fair? How can we be blamed for God doing what only God can do? See, I think part of the reason we struggle with these words so much is because we miss the, the true point of what Paul says and, and what God himself has said. It's true that God can do whatever he wants, but, but that's not really Paul's point. Paul's point, where he starts this whole thing off, is, is saying that God, God can have compassion on whomever he wants. He can, he can show mercy to whomever he wants. See, this isn't about God's power to play games with us. Or God's power just to flex his muscles to show us who's boss. That's not where Paul starts. Paul starts by talking about the fact that God can be good to whoever God wants to be good to. That God can be compassionate and merciful to whomever, whether that's a Jewish person or whether that's a Gentile person. God can show kindness to whoever he wants. Which bothers us, frankly. Doesn't it? I mean, of course not when we're talking about God's desire to show mercy or compassion to us. That doesn't bother us at all. We deserve it. But other people, the people who who have sinned against us, who've done something wrong to us, and and we say, I cannot forgive this person for what they've done to me. They, They don't deserve mercy. They don't deserve compassion for me or from God. How often do we do that? Or maybe it's not even so personal. Maybe, maybe it's just more objective. We see someone in the world and, and we judge them for, for what they've done and we say, how can that person ever receive the mercy or compassion of God that, that simply wouldn't be fair on the basis of what they've done to other people? See, see, we've got a problem, truly, with a God who is merciful and compassionate and who does this indiscriminately. And so did the first century Jews. I mean, this just didn't make sense to them. They were the heirs of Abraham's promise. They were the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't fair that God would now show his compassion to other people. You see, the point here for Paul is is not that God has the power to to send whoever to hell that he wants to do. I mean, although he does, that's not his point. His point is God will show mercy to who he wants to show mercy. He can be good to whoever he wants to. Now, there is one little nuance here. I mean, he does bring up this whole thing about Pharaoh— and Pharaoh was this hard-headed and hard-hearted guy that, that got plagues and judgment brought against him. And it seems to say that God is responsible for all of that. So, so God just goes around hardening people's hearts. And that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right either. But, but look again at what, what Paul actually says. What God actually says, I guess. God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. See, I've done some studying of Exodus, and and I don't believe that Pharaoh needed much help to get his heart hard. He was already stubborn. He was already hard-hearted. I think God found a hard-hearted guy, put him in the place of the uh, the king of Egypt so that he could accomplish all of this. But even if, so even if God was intentionally hardening Pharaoh's heart, even if he were doing that to Pharaoh against his will, which I don't believe is true, but even if, look, look at the reason God said he was doing it. He said, I'm doing it so that I might display my power in you and that you and everyone else in all the world might know what I'm all about. My name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see God's point even there with Pharaoh? 
It's so that more people, not just the Jewish people, but the Egyptians and everyone else in the whole world would know the mercy and the compassion that God wants to show to his people. See, see again, Paul's words here in Romans 9, we, we take them in so many ways. Let's not forget the point. The point is, God will be good to whoever he wants to be good to. It's not so much about his judgment. As I told you, Paul, he, uh, he rambles on for a couple of chapters and I, I can say that as one preacher to another. The guy rambles for two chapters, and he talks about all this stuff, and it's important rambling, and yet it's rambling nevertheless. And you've got to go all the way to chapter 11 to finally get what Paul's answer is to this question. You know, how, how can this be fair? What is God doing with us? Do we have a choice, or is God just picking us, and we've got no choice in this matter when it comes to faith? And so we're going to look at Romans 11 now, and in Romans 11, Paul's right in the middle of this analogy, another analogy, where he's talking about how we as people are like branches. And we are either, either connected to Jesus, and Jesus is represented as an olive tree here. And when we're connected with him, we have life, and we can be fruitful, and we can have, uh, have you know, even eternal life. Or we're branches that have been broken off. And if we're broken off branches, just like the sticks in your yard, we're destined to death. We're dying. And so he's using this analogy, and I want you to hear what he finally says. He says, okay... On this important question of do we have a choice when it comes to God, he says, Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell away. So he's talking about these, these Jewish people, these people born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who rejected Jesus and have been broken off because they don't want to be connected to Jesus. So, so sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, those of you who, who have received Christ. Provided that, he says, provided that you continue in his kindness. He goes on, he says, otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, those who have been broken off, if they do not persist in their unbelief, they will also be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Now it's not my place to give you a grammar lesson, and frankly I'm not the guy to do it, but... These are conditional clauses here. Do you see that? Phrases like if, or provided that, or otherwise, which are signaling something important for us. They're telling us that this is not a done deal for God. That that God hasn't, hasn't just kind of picked some people to be saved and picked some people not to be saved, and it's all determined. There is still room for us to act. We can still be grafted in, even after we've been broken off. If Paul says, we don't persist in unbelief. And he also cautions those people who are, who are currently a part of Christ. And he says, hey, yeah, you're a part of Christ, but don't be arrogant because you can be broken off if you choose not to continue in his kindness. See, the bottom line when Paul finally gets to it is that God gives us choices. Very real, important choices over the most important things. He's not pulling the puppet strings. Now, I realize that, that Christians are all over the map on this issue, on this, this issue of choice. And uh, as I've said, some denominations split over this. Christians fight with each other about this. It's a very important issue. And, and I will say that even though God gives us choice, let, let's be clear about something, that no one chooses God on their own. I mean, Jesus himself has, has said this. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And then I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus says no one just wakes up and thinks their way to God or finds God on their own. First, the Father has to summon you 
or draw you. We found out in 1 Timothy that God wants all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we don't believe that God only draws some, but, but still God has to work first. As Paul's writing in Romans, the, the section we just looked at, he's talking to people who have heard the gospel. They're being drawn by God. And so he's saying, hey, don't persist in unbelief and don't fall away from the kindness of God shown in you in Jesus. You've got a choice here. In one of the places of the Bible where choice is talked about probably most frequently, this, this place in Joshua, Verses that are pretty well known. Look at what it says here. It says, but if serving the Lord, Joshua was speaking to the Israelites before they really settle into the promised land. And he says, but if serving the Lord now, now that, now that God has got you here, if that seems undesirable to you, if you don't want to keep doing that, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates before you got to the promised land, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living— you, know, you want to serve those other gods, or do you want to serve the God who brought you to this point? Joshua says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So even there when Joshua's talking about, hey, you've got to make a choice here. He's not talking to people who have no knowledge of God. He's talking to people who have seen the works of God. He's talking to people who have, who have been a part of God's activity in the world. See, none of us come to God on our own. The Bible's clear about that. But at the same time, at the same time, faith is not a choice that God makes for us against our will. The scriptures are so clear on this that any of us can be cut off from Christ if we do not continue in his kindness. It's on us. And anyone who is currently not a part of Christ, they can be grafted in. It doesn't matter how dead and dying they are, they can be grafted in if. They don't persist in unbelief. See, really, it's that simple. So if this is true of the biggest deal in all the world, what about the other choices in life, the lesser choices? What about not faith in eternity and life and death, but what about who I marry and where I work? Do I have choices in those things? Well, I think it goes to say that if you have the choices in the big things, if God gives you some choice there, you've got choices in the smaller things. But, but really to unpack this for you today, and I'm going to close off with this, I want to share with you a parable. Uh, and maybe some of you know it. It's, it's called the parable of the talents, or it's now called the parable of the money bags of gold, because who knows what a talent is really. Um, so it's, uh, it's given a new name, but it's a parable that I think can teach us a lot about choice. I'm going to read through it really quickly. I'm going to make five points of application, and then we're going to be done. So, uh, so hang with me here. Jesus is teaching here, and Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven, you know, my, my activity in the world, what I'm doing, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. So in this parable, Jesus is really talking about himself. He's the man. He's this wealthy merchant who is going on a trip, who's leaving, and entrusts his servants with his property. And then he goes on. He says, to one, he gave five bags of gold, to another, two bags of gold, and to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag of gold, he does something different. He went off, he digs a hole in the ground, and he hides his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned, and he settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrust me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained you two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I, I harvest, supposedly, where I have not sown, and I gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, if that's true, then you, you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would receive it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags, for whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's kind of a crazy parable. Lots of application. Usually we look at this parable when we're talking about how we manage our resources and stewardship. Today I want to talk about this parable in terms of choice. Five quick points for you. First is this. God entrusts us with our lives. Just in the same way that the master entrusted the servants with, with this, you know, this treasure that was beyond their ability to manage, God has entrusted us with our lives, which is a treasure beyond our ability to manage. And yet, he entrusts us with it all the same. That means that God has given you your life to manage. He wants you to manage it. That means sometimes you'll, you'll make wise decisions. Sometimes you'll make gross mistakes. But God has given it to you so that you can manage it. You, you have choices here. You are the one who is called to manage your own life. And, and should you seek wisdom from Scripture? Yes. Should you pray for the Holy Spirit so that God might make you wise? Yes. Should you seek the counsel of other people? Yes. But ultimately, you and no one else have been entrusted with your life. Which leads us to the second point. There isn't only one path to blessing. I mean, it's kind of scary to be entrusted with your life, but the truth is there isn't only one path to blessing. I mean, notice there are three servants in the story. You know, one of them totally messes up, but the other two, they go off and they do different things. And and the one who has five, he doubles it and he gets five more. And the one who has two, he, he does some other business stuff and he gets two more. And there's not one path. There's not one template for blessing. See, I think this is so important for us because I think so often we get into this mindset that God's will for us is so narrow that it's like walking a tightrope, and if we fall off either side, we will fall off into the disfavor of God or the judgment of God. And that's simply not true. God is, is so good. He can, he can be merciful to who he wants to be merciful, and he can be compassionate to whoever he wants to be compassionate to, even to people who make mistakes. So there isn't one path to blessing for us. See, I think, in fact, the key is faithfulness. Not of action, but faithfulness of heart. If you know about King David, he was the greatest king in Israel's history, but he was a guy who made lots of mistakes and yet he was blessed. And the reason he was blessed even in spite of his mistakes, the scriptures make clear, is because he was a man after God's own heart. Even though he didn't always make the right decisions in life or the right choices, he loved God and he wanted to honor him. And yes, he was... He was frail and fractured and he made mistakes. And, 
And yet, and yet because his heart was focused on God and, and he wanted to serve God and he loved God and God loved him, he found blessing. I'll talk more about that later. The third point, foreknowledge isn't causative. Now this is kind of heady, but, but basically, does God know everything? Yes. You know, even in the parable, I think there's a reason that the master gives the, the wicked and lazy servant, the last servant, I think there's a reason he only gets one bag of gold to begin with. The master's well aware of his ability and has an idea about how he's going to perform. Does God know everything about our lives? Yes. Does he see it all? Yes. Does that mean that God causes everything? No. Even though God knows everything, it doesn't mean he's responsible for everything that happens. God's foreknowledge is perfect, but it doesn't mean that he causes everything to happen. He lets us have a role in our own lives and and a role that we play in the world. Foreknowledge isn't the same thing as causation. We have to keep those two things separate. Fourth, God is a gentleman. He doesn't force himself on anyone. See, I think this is so true. You've probably heard me say this before. It's true in matters of, of faith, of belief. God will not force himself on any of us, forcing us to believe against our will. He won't. Now, 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 does he woo us? Does he call us? Does he summon us? Does he bless us? Does he set his affection on us? Does he try to get us to love him back? Yes! But he does it as a gentleman. He does not force himself on anyone, and that also applies to the other decisions that we make in life. I mean, does God know who you're going to marry? Yeah. Does God know what job would be best for you? Yeah, he knows all of that stuff. He knows if it's a good idea or not, but he doesn't force your hand in any of that. You notice how he lets the servants go in the parable? He just kind of lets them go. He doesn't micromanage them. He lets them either be faithful or foolish. He lets them go their own way and, and use what's been entrusted to them to the best of their ability. And two of them are successful. The other one is a miserable failure. God doesn't force his way on, on, onto them. Now, that's important for us to understand because none of us like to be micromanaged. I've learned that, right? I don't like it. No one on my team likes it. No one in my family likes it. And God doesn't do that to you either. He's a gentleman. Does he hold out wisdom and truth? Yes. Does he force his way? No. And then last, and I think this is the most important of all, the biggest mistake we can make is to be paralyzed. See, a lot of us think that the biggest mistake we can make is to make a mistake. And that's why we get so, so scared about this idea that we actually have choice, that we have will. We'd rather just put it on God because then we're not responsible. But in reality, the biggest mistake we can make is not to make a mistake. The biggest mistake we can make is to be paralyzed. So again, in the parable, two servants, they were successful. They, they doubled the master's money. The one guy... He's not successful. He buries it in the ground. And do you remember why? Do you remember his motivation? What did it say? Why does he bury it in the ground? You can say it out loud. He was afraid. Right? He he was terrified, not just of making a mistake, he was terrified of his master. And he goes into this diatribe of, "You're you're a hard man, master. You know, you take things that aren't yours. You harvest where you've not sown. You gather where you've not scattered seed. You're a bully. Is that true? No. I mean, this is the guy who entrusts his servants with his own treasure, and in the end, he gives it to them. You know, the guy who's got 10, I'm going to give him 11, and that's his to manage now. I mean, this guy's not a bully. And if the truth for us, how often do we see God that way, like that last servant? Right? 
God, you're, you're a hard God, and your expectations are so severe, and if I step out of the line, I know I'm going to get spanked by you, and I'm going to get you know, in, in trouble with you. That's not true. That's not who God is. That's not his character. See, the biggest mistake we can make is to be paralyzed, like that last servant, to do nothing, to hide our, our, what's been entrusted to us, our lives, to hide it in the ground, to say, well, at least if it's there, I can't mess up. That's not what God wants for you. That's not why he entrusted you with life, with, with your treasure, with the, with the gifts that he's given you, with anything. And further, that's a misunderstanding of who God is, that he is not a hard and harsh master. I mean, he's a God who's given you his son as a love offering. He's a God who sent his son into the world to die for all of your mistakes the ones you've committed in the past, and the ones you, are yet, you have yet to commit in the future. Jesus came to take all of those away so that you wouldn't be afraid of making mistakes. You would no longer believe that the biggest mistake we can make in life is to make a big mistake. No! Jesus has paid for those mistakes. God doesn't want you to be afraid. I love that new song that we're singing, uh, You Make Me Brave. Do you know that? That God doesn't want you to be, to be, to be a fearful and compliant and, and to be looking over your shoulder at what the Master thinks. He set you free from that through Jesus. He's made a way for you to enter his presence regardless of your performance. He loves you with an everlasting love. He wants you to be brave. He wants you to be bold. Uh, the reformer Martin Luther, he once said, and it's probably one of the most misquoted things that, uh, that was ever said by Luther, he once said these two words. He said, sin boldly. And every college student who goes through a Lutheran college like I did, they, they hold those words dear and they misapply them. They go, sin boldly, right? You should just go and sin boldly because Jesus forgives you. No, that's not what he was saying. What he was talking to is, is he was speaking to people like us who, who get paralyzed sometimes in life. And we say, I want to serve God and I want to use what's entrusted in me, but I'm afraid of making a mistake. And what will God think if I make a mistake? And he said, you know what? Sin boldly. If you're afraid of sinning, if that's what's holding you back from acting in life, if that's what's keeping you from serving God, if that's what's keeping you from mission, if, if that's what's keeping you from, from being faithful with what God has entrusted to you, then just go out there and do it. And if you sin, do it boldly because Jesus has made a way for you to be forgiven. See, the worst thing you could do is not to sin. The worst thing you could do is to be paralyzed. Is to believe that God is so hard that he has no grace for you. The worst thing you could do is, is to take what you've been given, and, and that includes the ability to decide a lot of things for yourself in life, and to delegate it to someone else, or to hide it into the ground, and to not use what's been entrusted to you well. See, God isn't out to spank you. He loves you. He sent his son Jesus so that you can be free. He can even find a way to turn in your mistakes and your failures into teaching moments and blessings. That's who he is so there's no reason for us to live in fear. And that's what I want to pray for for all of us today. Bow your heads with me. Father, I pray that you would help us not be like that last servant who has a false idea of who you are, a false image of who you are, and so he cowers afraid. God, don't make us people like that. You've entrusted us with a lot, and you've called us to, uh, to carry a lot, and sometimes it seems like it's, it's beyond our pay grade, and, and the truth is it is, and and yet, God, I pray that you would give us wisdom and that you'd give us your spirit so that we can be wise and faithful with what has been entrusted to us. But God, I pray that you'd also give us a clear understanding of who you are, that you're a God who loves us and you don't want us to be paralyzed. You don't want us to be afraid. 
You want our hearts more than our action. And even when we mess up, you know, uh, you know whether or not we're people who love you and trust you. God, that's what matters to you. Just set our hearts right on this whole issue. Help us be wise and discerning, but help us be bold. Help us be free, for Jesus has come to set us free. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.